The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Thanks for joining us. A bit later, we'll hear from the artist Teresita Fernandez, whose show at the Perez Art Museum in Miami is one of the highlights of the huge number of exhibitions and events programmed to coincide with this year's Art Basel in Miami Beach Art Fair. But first, the Turner Prize. On Monday, it was announced that this year's shortlisted artists, Lawrence Abu Hamdan, Helen Kamak, Oscar Murillo and Tai Shani, had requested that the jury consider awarding the prize to them as a collective. The jury unanimously decided to honour that request. And so, for the first time in its 35-year history, the prize was awarded not to one winner, but to all four shortlisted artists. Here's the letter that the artist wrote to the jury. After a number of discussions, we've come to a collective view that we'd like to be considered together for this year's award. We are therefore writing to request that you, as the jury, might consider awarding the prize to the four of us collectively and not to any of us individually. We hope that you'll both understand and honour the position we've arrived at. This year, you've selected a group of artists who, perhaps more than ever before in the prize's history, are all engaged in forms of social or participatory practice. More specifically, each of us makes art about social and political issues, and contexts we believe are of great importance and urgency. The politics we deal with differ greatly, and for us it would feel problematic if they were pitted against each other, with the implication that one was more important, significant, or more worthy of attention than the others. None of us had met each other prior to the Turner Prize, however, on our initial meeting in Margate, we quickly realised the underlying shared ethos that runs across our otherwise very different practices. At this time of political crisis, in Britain and much of the world, when there's already so much that divides and isolates people and communities, we feel strongly motivated to use the occasion of the prize to make a collective statement in the name of commonality, multiplicity and solidarity, in art as in society. In interviews since being awarded the prize, the artists have confirmed that they had planned this intervention almost as soon as they met and that it was presented to the Tate trustees before being formally presented to the jury. And indeed, there were hints at their plans in interviews we did with Oscar Murillo and Helen Kamak on the Art Newspaper podcast earlier this year. Let's hear what they had to say. First, here's Oscar. Yeah, the the Toronto Prize is is a complicated situation. I I am obviously incredibly honoured initially by the jury who took uh, time at looking at my work and to warrant it, to grant it, it being to be part of this this selection of, of four incredible artists. And I think that already is a, a, a price. I, I, I actually have, have zero care beyond now doing a brilliant show at Turner Contemporary. And here's what Helen said a few weeks later. The other three artists and I have been having discussions about how important it is that we consider the idea of a group show, the idea that there's something collegiate that's happening. We've been talking about the relationships between our work because fundamentally the idea that we're in competition with each other for a prize is really because there aren't enough opportunities for artists in the UK and that's the that's the thing that's really frustrating about it is that we shouldn't be in competition no artist should have to be in competition with each other because we work in very different ways um and actually there should be enough space for everybody be, to be working and thinking and progressing and having conversations in a way that it's not about trying to be the best or trying to you know be ahead or seen more fully than the next person but unfortunately when opportunities are quite lacking that's what happens Um, and so 
the way that we've been thinking about it and talking about it is 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 trying to somehow interrupt that and do it in a different way. Now, at the ceremony itself at Turner Contemporary in Margate, the political background to the artist's request was fleshed out even more in Helen Kamek's speech. Here's an excerpt from that speech. We believe when grouped together, such practices become incompatible with the competition format, whose tendency is to divide and to individualise. Placing in contention the issues in our work would undermine our individual artistic efforts to show a world entangled. The issues we each deal with are as inseparable as climate chaos is from capitalism. We each seek to use art to push the edges of issues, mapping the bleed of one into another across time, across sectionalities, across the realm of the real and the imagined and through walls and borders. The Turner Prize is given to a British artist or artist working in Britain. This year, as it has often done in the past, the prize has sought to expand what it means to be British. We find this significant in an era marked by the rise of the right and the renewal of fascism in an era of the Conservatives' hostile environment that has paradoxically made each of us and many of our friends and family again increasingly unwelcome in Britain. And this is supported by an environment of normalised racism, an ideologically driven brutality of austerity, the privatisation of social services and healthcare, destruction of education, a corrupt media and the prioritisation of corporate interest above all else. Isolation and exclusion are the weapons of this hostile environment. It is in this we seek to stand against by making this symbolic gesture of cohesion. In nine days, we have the chance to turn gesture into action, to vote for the collective benefit of all our shared futures. None of us had met each other prior to the Turner Prize nomination, but on our initial meeting in Margate, we quickly realised the shared ethos that runs across our otherwise very different practices. So what does this mean for the future of the prize? I'm joined by Louisa Buck, the contemporary art correspondent for the art newspaper, who was a member of the Turner Prize jury in 2005. Louisa, I'd like you to sort of imagine you're back in 2005 when you're on the Turner Prize jury and you're sitting in the Tate boardroom and looking out over the Thames and in comes somebody from the Tate with a letter from the artists requesting that rather than giving the prize to one of them, you award it to all four of them. What do you think you'd have done? Well, I'd have been gobsmacked and, and quite flawed because obviously the whole purpose of the Turner after you've selected the shortlist of four is to select a winner. But I have to say that I turned down judging the Turner Prize twice because the shortlisted artists weren't given any money for the exhibition and any kind of recognition of being on the shortlist. It was only when actually they all got something for being shortlisted that I then loftily agreed to do it. So... It fits with my ethos, but it would have been very disconcerting, certainly, yes. But the prize is punishing for artists, and the one past the post is not very friendly towards judging many different art forms that often, you know, aren't that aren't that able to be assessed in the same sort of way. But to be honest, to my mind, when I was judging the Turner Prize, it was more important for me to get a really strong shortlist of four nominees really artists who'd who'd made interesting, valuable contributions over the last year in their exhibitions. That, to me, was the key thing, to get a really strong four artists so I could hold my head up and be really, you know, proud of that shortlist. And then who won over and above that, to my mind, was of of considerably lesser importance. I think that's right. I mean, one thing that is probably not very well understood is the demands that the Turner Prize actually places on artists. Can you say something about what kind of experience they have when they are shortlisted? 
I think it's mellowed out because everyone's become more media savvy and we live in a kind of, you know, society of spectacle in a way that, you know, 15, 20 years ago we didn't. But certainly, you know, in its heyday, the Turner Prize was absolutely punishing for artists because it was sponsored by Channel 4, who made a short film about the artist. So the artist had to be kind of trailed by a camera crew in their studios, in, interviewed. Now, that may all sound very sort of, you know, normal and so what to us. But actually, you know, artists are often very private people. Their studios, their sanctuary. And it's a real ordeal. Then you get the whole blaze of publicity. And in the past, again, the Turner Prize used to arise and court it, I would argue, a great deal of controversy. You know, they wanted people to be discussing and arguing and saying, what's all this rubbish? You know, contemporary art, explain, explain, we don't like it. And the artist would take the brunt of that. And it was very, very punishing for them. That's right. So that they beforehand, for instance, they would have had reviews in, say, Freeze magazine and, and, and art magazines, Art Monthly. And, and those may have been critical. But when they entered the sort of Turner Prize arena, suddenly it got one more personal and two more voluminous and also by non-specialists so people you would get people saying this isn't art at all for instance yeah you get a lot of tabloid flack and lots of personal attacks and just general kind of putting your face above the parapet you suddenly became this kind of weird celebrity as an artist and some artists loved it i mean grayson perry absolutely thrived wolfgang tillmans who's a very kind of even-tempered passionate person thrived as well he was fine with it but you know other artists found it really really punishing and quite often actually artists have although it's not publicized too much declined to accept the nomination at all sarah lucas julian opie kerith Wynne evans all decided for various reasons and i would argue mainly the kind of lamb to the slaughter publicity fest aspect you know decided not to actually take the nomination I think that what's, that what's interesting about this year is, of course, though, the artists had that option, didn't they? But why do you think it's different this year? Why do you think if they had problems with the idea of being in competition with other artists, why didn't they then say well, from the off, well, actually, no, I'd rather well, not be? In- it's complicated because, of course, the other side of the coin is that, you know, you get a great deal of exposure. Your work gets a lovely little capsule solo show at, at Tate or whatever other venue is hosting the Turner Prize, but, you know, with a great deal of high profile it ups your market value, it ups your general kind of currency and leverage as an artist and, crucially in this case, as an individual because, you know, you are speaking on live television at the awards ceremony. You can say what you like. There's not much they can do short of, you know, throwing you off the stage. So, actually, you have an extraordinary amount of of leverage in a limited amount of time and I think that was very significant for these particular artists in this time. I wonder, I mean, also, Taishani came on the this podcast some time ago and talked very eloquently I think about about the fact that she was showing very widely but actually was struggling to make ends meet and there's this perception again of of, of successful artists being successful financially and, and actually for, for Ty I would have felt that I would I would imagine it would have been very difficult for her to say no because it does even even if she hadn't have won the prize she would have at least had a £5,000 fee and as you say her the greater exposure and therefore potentially been able to sell more more work and make make ends meet a little bit better. I mean, it is an endorsement, you know, even though it's not the great sort of weather vane yardstick that it used to be. Um, and so actually it's all calmed down publicity-wise as well to a great extent because I think, you know, generally contemporary art, it's achieved its aim, the Turner Prize. It has put contemporary art into the cultural mainstream. People aren't shocked and appalled at something that isn't, you know, either a marble sculpture or a painting on canvas. In fact, they're often quite shocked now people do put paintings on canvas in the Turner Prize. So, you know, there is that sense that it has been... It 
has succeeded in that in that in that way, and it is now one prize among many. Um, you know, with arts funding and art sponsorship and artists' ability to live and work in central London or central central parts of cities or be able to work and you know support themselves at all, being so limited now, as you say, any kind of funding is is gratefully received, and prizes have become a sort of weird alternative revenue stream. I think of the Hamlin Awards, which is a much kinder to artists award because it awards an artist a lump sum just by dint of being them. They haven't got to do anything for it. But, you know, it's helped a lot of artists to actually continue functioning as artists. So, yes, I think the artist didn't want to turn it down because it is an endorsement. It also, it slightly disses all the other Turner Prize shortlisters if you turn it down. It sort of looks like, you know, you're in some way morally higher than them or on some kind of higher ethical plane. So, yes, they did take the, the nomination, but then, as we subsequently have discovered, you know, decided to do something rather radical with it. Now, we heard from Oscar and Helen in a couple of quotes from earlier podcasts, and we've subsequently read in a Guardian interview that this was planned over a long period you know it wasn't something that came to them very recently right from the start it seems they had this mutual idea that that they were they found the competitive aspect a bit distasteful I think it's really interesting none of them had met before they became Turner Shortlisted it wasn't like they'd been cooking up this dark plot you know as a sort of an idea to subvert the Turner Prize way 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 back when but as you say it wasn't a last minute decision either they had decided back in the summer as we discovered from this interview and I think People have said, is this the end of the Turner Prize as we know it? You know, obviously the artists have, in, a, in effect, staged a very sort of genteel, polite, but bloodless coup. They've taken it over. I mean, they've, they've said to the jurors, we're going to tell you who you ought to appoint as the winner, and it's all of us, and we're a collective, and it's a fait accompli. Now, I would argue that they did this not necessarily to subvert the Turner Prize as a sort of rebellious, peevish artistic gesture against a prize that is, as we've said, problematic for artists, but because I think they felt it was it was quite a complex thing. On the one hand, all of their practice, although it's very, very different, each of them make markedly different artworks. I mean, you know, Shani's, you know, voluptuous performances with many, many layers of text, sort of proposing a post-patriarchal world. Um, you know, Oscar Murillo's many, many investigations here with these figures talking about global economy, workforces, the kind of subjugation of that. Um, and then you've also got Helen Kamak looking back into the, into the into the women's role in in, in the in the in the in the protests in Northern Northern Ireland and the way in which women played a, a role within that, specifically Bernadette Devlin. And then of course Lawrence Abu Hamdan talking about the way in which oral histories and oral experiences can be used in a kind of you know forensic way to to to, to investigate human rights and the experience of prisoners. I mean, I'm I'm going on a bit because it's rich, multi-layered work, but they are all raising very complex and really important socio-political issues. And I think they felt because their work was so dependent and predicated about these issues, you couldn't sort of privilege one over the other and go, okay, you know, feminism here over human rights over shared histories over you know this this would have been a kind of anomalous weird thing for them to do so it's got an awful lot to do I think about their practice as artists and how they felt they had a shared collective ethos that was appropriate for this kind of gesture I think for me that I found that slightly tricky because last year's shortlist was I think similarly political and socially um, engaged in the sense that you had um, for the, well let's just take just take the winner Charlotte Proger's work is very poetic and in some ways enigmatic but absolutely central to it is is her identity as a queer woman and I think this is 
you know, in a way, the jury last year was able to make the decision that, yes, you know, all four of these artists, we've shortlisted them, they, all of their work has merits, but Charlotte's work in this particular year has been the strongest. Now, uh, in a way, again, are the artists sort of rather restricting the um, respect that the uh, jury can show to the artists by making this decision, by taking that judgment away from them? Does it some Is it somehow a sort of disrespectful act to the jury themselves? It is really problematic. I mean, you could argue that all art is personal, all art is political, all art is issues that are dear to the, to the artist's heart, and therefore, you know... On the one hand, none of them can be privileged over the other because it's apples and pears, different kinds of expression. And as I banged on endlessly about all the different kinds of art forms in this shortlist, they are very multifarious. But I think what was key here also, the key ingredient, was the dynamic between the artists themselves. You know, last year's shortlist, these artists didn't reach that consensual agreement. Yes, yes. Of course, the same principles could apply. There was a lot of a lot of the work, all the work had political engagement and, and was grappling with, with big issues. But the difference is this year, the artists themselves felt between each other, the dynamic between them, the combination was this key element where they reached this agreement amongst themselves. And I would argue that was a kind of unique, strange confluence of, you know, a perfect storm, if you like, of, of, of people coming together, personalities, interests. I mean, their incomes are very different. Oscar Marino is incredibly successful in the international art world. Taishani, as we said, has publicly said she struggled to make ends meet. But they all have big ambition as artists. But I think, you know, in this case, they all thought that actually amongst each other, they would feel awkward with the dynamic between them if one of them actually was privileged over the other in terms of what they did. But yes, they did undermine the jury because they said to the jury, we're not going to abide by what you want. We're going to tell you what you should do. One of the things that they've said is that about the particular divisive moment that we're living in, and it seems to me this became particularly clear. You were at the ceremony the other day, and I think it really became clear in, in the speech that they'd written that Helen read out, which very, very specifically addressed certain issues, which was, was sort of generally alluded to in the letter. So, for instance, the rise of the right, the rise of fascism, the brutality of austerity in Britain. So very specific issues, and it's... And it seems to me that the fact that we've got an election, it's now a week away. It seems to me that, in a way, that might be the, the sort of tipping point. That Here we are in a very, very particular uh, moment, which is, yes, just social division across society, but also, you know, a, a, an election that is seen as a once-in-a-generation moment. Do you think that that particular heightened feeling has I think it absolutely... That was the other key element. So you have the, the nature of the artworks themselves, you have the dynamic between the artists, and then, absolutely crucially, you have this moment where we're just before a general election, as you say, this kind of generation-defining election. I mean, everybody, before the prize winner was announced at the dinner, was talking about, you know, this the status quo, the political situation, this election, what we're going to do, how futile we all felt, how how impossibly bleak the situation seemed. I mean, of course, you know, you've got the old liberal elite there in, in, in their droves, but there was very much that sense of talking about the current status quo. You wouldn't normally talk about all that stuff at, at, a, at a prize awards dinner. You might a bit, but this was really the talk of conversation. So then when this statement was, when, when the result was announced and saying that, you know, they wanted to make a show of solidarity, of communality in these divided times, Times, you know, everyone went, oh, wow, this is what we've just been talking about. Someone's actually doing something. They're making a gesture. Of course, it's a symbolic gesture. Of course, it's just an art prize. It's not going to save the NHS or stop institutional racism or austerity. But there was a sense of them actually standing up and being counted. So when Helen actually did read out this, this joint statement that they'd all made um, 
about their joint acceptance, there was this absolutely, you know, trenchant disavowal of government policy, the specifics of, as, as you said, of, of austerity, of, of racism, of divisiveness. You know, everyone was everyone was absolutely enthralled by it because they, it was it was felt that somebody was actually they were actually doing something concrete about this terrible situation. And with they even mentioned the election coming up. I mean. They weren't party political in what they said. They were party political, but they, they didn't make any obvious statement. But of course, they were bedecked in, you know, Tories out necklaces and vote Labour stickers. So, you know, they nailed their colours fairly firmly to the mast. And they had used another reason why they obviously wanted to accept the nomination. They didn't know back in June that was going to be the selection. But there was a sense, I think, also of using the platform, the public platform, national news on the BBC to be able to stand up and go, you know, we are artists, we are people, we live in this world and we care. I think that what the, the most interesting thing now is what effect this has on future prizes. Because is it just this very, very heightened moment, and then can the can the prize return to normal next year? I think it so depends on what's happening next year, who's shortlisted. I mean, we've said the prize isn't this great big benchmark that it used to be it isn't the lightning rod for all people of all the kind of prejudices and concerns and and debate around contemporary art that it used to be contemporary art has entered the cultural mainstream it, you know it's not this 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 well sort of seething mass of controversy but on the other hand it is still the big art prize in the UK there's no doubt about it because it does have this first past the post element I mean let's not forget in the past you know an artist um, Helen Martin split her prize money between the four winners in 2016 I think and let's not forget also it was given to an architectural collective assemble so you know there has already been senses of communality and collectivity nibbling away at the Turner Prize anyway and there's no doubt that you know in the future it may well have other elements along those lines. But I really do think that, you know, it depends on the dynamic between the artists who are shortlisted, who's shortlisted, what the situation is at the time. I mean, after the year after Helen Martin split her prize money four ways, Charlotte Proger, you know, stood up and was very happy to receive her cheque for being the Paterna Prize winner. And nobody thought, ooh, that's a rampant individualist. How dare she be so egotistical? You know, everyone went, jolly good, she deserved it. You know, so I think it really would vary that according to, to so many different aspects of, of the circumstances, the artist dynamic. I think the prize has still got some legs, but they're just not such speedy, important ones. This now is an option, of course, and it may be that other groups of artists in the past have had similar conversations but just never thought it would be possible to make this kind of intervention. But now it is an intervention on the table. And I noticed that in the interviews afterwards on the BBC News programme, which, as you say, was live on TV, you know, Ty Shani said it's up to the artists next year. And you see, again, that sort of... It does make it rather difficult for an artist to a certain degree to then, to then stand up and accept the prize on their own next year in, in, in a way that I think is is slightly different to just dividing the prize money. It's to say, I as an artist feel happy accepting this prize above the other three artists. In a way, though, these these this year's artists have kind of set a grounding which 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 makes it diff- more difficult than it was before to simply get up and say, yes, I deserve this. I'm really delighted to win this prize. That's true. I mean, a gauntlet has been thrown down, and you know it is a challenge to the prize. And you certainly saw the whites of the Tate curator's eyes after this after the result had been announced. You know, and indeed, I'm um, Alex Farkas, director of, of Tate Britain. You know, there was a definite 
frisson of unease about it. Well, of course, publicly they're all very supportive about it, and you know he's the chair of the jury, so he accepted the accept. But you know the jury couldn't really refuse. It would exactly. have been very difficult. And I, I agree, it is complicated. It is a gauntlet that's been thrown down. It is a challenge. I mean, I think they will still hold the Turner Prize next year. Let's see. I think it will be very interesting. It's another. It's another challenge for the artists, really. I mean, you know, they've already got to face the publicity, having to have a sudden major show at very short notice if they are shortlisted. I mean, one could go poor things, and indeed, you know, the prospect of a large chunk of prize money, no bad thing. But it is another pressure to put on them as to how to respond to that challenge that's been laid down. But I still would argue that, you know, it's very dependent on the kind of work that was being produced. I mean, all those four artists were making very political work. It was very collective work, participatory work. It wasn't one person on their own in the studio wrestling with a canvas. You know, there was a different kind of communality to it. And it is a very, we live in strange times. You know, it is a particularly uneasy, febrile, anxious making time and I think if the artist hadn't responded to that someone just gone jolly good thank you very much and not made any reference in their speech that would have seemed quite weird as well so I think we really do have to wait and see I suppose that one option for the Tate would be to now institute a set of rules which say you know artists can own you know only it must be awarded to one artist but the problem is if they do that they're in some way disrespecting what this year's artists have done they're you know they're they're denying this kind of collectivity that we've we've been admiring on this on this podcast today so there's lots of ways in which hands are tied it it basically does present the tape with a with a a series of tricky uh decisions to make It it is very complicated now because as you say, if they instill this rule, it looks like they've devalued what happened here when everybody's been saying how marvellous it is and how honoured the judges said they felt honoured to, to to be able to kind of comply with this with this request from the shortlisted artists. But I still think that off the record, Tate will be very firmly saying next year to the shortlisted artists, we want to give one artist this prize. We don't want to have any more of this kind of malarkey, thank you very much. Because, you know, it does undermine the ethos of the prize. But then maybe, maybe then artists will refuse to take part. Maybe it really could spell the death knell of of, the Turner Prize. I think... It's a shame if there isn't some kind of assessment every year of taking the pulse of what's going on and what four very subjective individuals, because that's what the jury is, feel are the most interesting art shows of the year before. It's a way to give artists money. It's a way to give artists exposure. It's a way to show maybe they just have to have it as a four shortlist prize. Maybe maybe get rid of the prize. I mean, I always felt it was problematic, hence me being all lofty and not doing it until somebody at least got some money for, for putting on the show. And so maybe the time has come not to get rid of the prize, but just to choose four artists who they feel are the, the artists who made the most significant contribution. That would be the way to do it. Let the artists judge the format of the prize and dictate the format of the prize and let these four artists produce that into the future. Mind boggles about what happens next year when we're hurtling towards another no deal Brexit and Donald Trump wins his second term. (laughs) Anyway, Louisa, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. You can read Louisa's comment piece on this story at theartnewspaper.com and you can listen to those full interviews with Helen Kamak and Oscar Murillo both in June 2019 wherever you get your podcasts. The Turner Prize exhibition continues at Turner Contemporary in Margate until the 12th of January 2020, and admission is free. We'll be back talking to Teresita Fernandez after this. 
The multi-talented French avant-garde poet, painter, writer and filmmaker Jean Cocteau was in his late 60s when he added ceramics to his creative bow. Producing his first pieces in 1957, Cocteau threw himself into this new passion with such energy that within a year he held a solo exhibition of ceramic works in Paris. Before his death in 1963, he created 300 pieces, a selection of which comes to Bonham's Prints and Multiples sale this December. Bonham's head of Prints and Multiples, Lucia Tro Santa Fe, said, This is the largest and most representative collection of Cocteau ceramics ever seen at auction. Throughout his life, the artist often looked to classical myths and legends for inspiration. This influence is very evident in his ceramic pieces, all rendered with the clean and graphic lines that were such an important part of his artistic expression. For more about this story, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, the Miami-born artist Teresita Fernandez has returned home for her first mid-career survey, which is being shown at the Perez Art Museum in Miami. This large-scale exhibition features more than 50 sculptures, installations, drawings and wall pieces made by Fernandez over the past 20 years. Our editor in the Americas, Helen Stoilus, visited Fernandez in her New York studio to discuss the show. So this is your first full museum retrospective, and it's also a return to Miami for you, not just as the city that you were born in, but where you kind of got your start as an artist. You got your BFA at the Florida International University, um, and you got some of your first shows in Miami. Do you think you could talk a little bit about that, what it was like kind of coming up in Miami as a young artist? Um, yes. Um, so just... Just to clarify, though, I've lived in New York for over 20 years, which uh, a lot of people um, don't know sometimes. They think that just because I'm from Miami, I've lived there, but I've actually lived in, in, and worked um, in Brooklyn, New York for, since 1997. Um, but I did go to undergraduate school in Miami before going to a lot of other places and doing graduate school in Virginia and then traveling sort of all over the world. Um, but um, Miami was uh, the place that I moved back to um, right after graduate school and where I first started sort of working on my own outside of a school context. Um, so yeah, it is a return for me and it's, um, it's really important that my first mid-career retrospective is in my hometown because so much of um, my work really is about place and about sort of unraveling one's relationship to place. So it was uh, loaded in lots of ways personally as well to be able to contextualize it within that framework. And it, it also seems like a city that really encapsulates a lot of the themes that you explore in your work, this idea of landscape, this idea of the American landscape and how that's changed and what's going on not just naturally, but politically and socially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Miami is an immigrant city. It's a, it's, a, it's a city built on the labor of immigrant people and black and brown people. Um, so my family happens to be from Cuba. They came right after the revolution. Um, but certainly Miami, which is a very young town as well, um, was, was very much built on the labor of Bahamians and Haitians and Cubans. And so this sort of very expansive sense of a Caribbean presence in the city that goes back a very long way. And the viewer, the audience, becomes a, a really integral part of your work very often, especially in these large-scale installations. It's really about experiencing it in the middle of the work. Yes, absolutely. Um, in fact, 
uh, early on when my work, uh, in the very early days, when my work looked more architectural, people would often ask me questions about my relationship to architecture or whether I was an architect or whether I had studied architecture. And I didn't, you know, I was very much a sculptor, a conceptual artist who had, uh, whose practice was rooted in sculpture. Um, but I always said that my connection to the architectural had to do with, with human scale. It had to do with that immersive component of um, you as a viewer sort of being um, uh, immersed in in a spatial context and negotiating that and traversing that. And one of these um, early immersive installations, Borrowed Landscape, from 1998, that was part of your the work that you created out of your artist residency at Art Pace in San Antonio. That's going to be in the current show, right? Yes. Um, Borrowed Landscape uh, was created in um, at Art Pace at the residency in 1998. Um, it's actually the, the the last place I was in my travels um, before moving to New York and, and taking up residence here um, permanently. And the, the the piece consists of these five uh, sculptural volumes made out of fabric and wood and drawing and artificial light. And um, they are references to um, 17th century formal gardens as well as Japanese traditional gardening techniques um, that have to do with distal cues and um, the idea of unraveling a space by tracing the geometric patterns with your moving body, which is essentially what you do when you're moving through one of those um, shaped parterre hedges like Versailles or Volevincombe. Um, so, uh, that piece is in the exhibition and I hadn't seen it for 20 years. So it was sort of a, uh, a really, um, a delightful moment to be able to pull it out of storage and install it again. Oh, that's great. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like revisiting some of those early works as an artist? I mean, how do you reapproach them and how have they changed in your eyes, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, so the, the work in the show, there are over 50 pieces in the show, and they come from different periods of time, from the last 20 years. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a kind of exercise in mining one's past. Um, and in some cases, I was pleasantly surprised and really found works that are included in the show that, that felt very fresh to me and that felt very connected to the work that I'm doing now, especially conceptually. Um, and I was also uh, surprised just to see how how well some of them had had held up. And I'm not talking about their physical conditions, but their kind of sort of laser focus on um, specific uh, themes that are still really important to me now. And how, as a young artist, I was I was very much um, unraveling these notions of. Uh, uh, the viewer um, navigating and wayfinding on all of these different levels that are physical and immersive, like you mentioned before, but also metaphorical and poetic and that have a whole lot to do with imagining and projecting oneself into different scenarios and spaces. Do you think audiences have become a bit more um, tuned to that kind of work? Did you find your work being experienced in a different way 20 years ago than it is now? Do you think people are more used to these kinds of immersive works where walking into them is part of the experience and, you know, they, they see more of that? Or do well, you think- I mean, there, there was a lot of installation happening then, too. Um, in, this partic- in this particular iteration... 
of the exhibition, um, what I've done is I've basically created, I've used the landscape of the gallery. It's a very it's a series of big gallery spaces, almost as a kind of landscape that you're traversing, like a journey that you're moving through, through the spaces. And so what I've done is I've taken a lot of old works, um, arranged sort of by, by, by period of time, but also by, by themes such as, you know, subterranean, nocturnal, um, uh, radiance, uh, uh, different sorts of um, visual cues. And I've arranged them so that they're kind of installations made out of a lot of different individual works. Um, so they've never been seen in that way. So you might walk into a room and walk underneath uh, a piece that's suspended over your head called Vertigo, Vertigo Soto Insu. And then you might look down onto another work that's a mirror on the floor that you're reflected in, but that also reflects everything around it. Um, and so the, the shadows and the reflection of one work spill into the work next to it. So all of the works together are kind of creating their own installation as well. Just the, the exhibition in itself is kind of a greater work of art in a way. Uh, the exhibition is like, um, it's like a series of containers. And so, you know, the first container is actually the city as a reference. Um, and it's, all, it's like concentric containers. Um, and then there's a museum within that city. And it's a very particular museum in a very, very particular city. And so each of the galleries are then like a subsequent container. Um, and within that, there are uh, installations that are their very own kind of rooms that you walk into um, that are uh, dark or that sort of shift um, your attention. Can we talk so about some of your um, more recent works, the, the kind of burned um, charcoal-based installations um, that are kind of about contemporary American society and what those came out of? I've seen um, some burned drawings based on landscapes in Puerto Rico. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And then you have these massive maps of the U.S., maps of the world that are made out of charcoal kind of wall pieces, sculptural wall pieces that map out the world. What was the kind of starting point for those kinds of works and how did they develop into these massive, mm -hmm. you know, maps? Well, it's interesting that you think of that work as more contemporary or more related to contemporary issues because that is true, but only because they connect to historical issues. Mm. Um, and so a lot of my work really um, deals with um, uncovering the kind of erasure that exists around ideas of place and landscape and um, using materials that very directly speak to the violence embedded in the colonial landscape and in what we think of uh, in these um, uh, prescribed uh, settings, like even the word America or the Americas and how in the United States, um, America is always used in the singular, but, you know, in the rest of the Western Hemisphere, that is used plural as the Americas. And so these sort of um, uh, preconceived notions that we have often from a point of view of American exceptionalism uh, as well, of not even understanding where we are, um, because what things get named and how borders get uh shifted and controlled are all about who, who, who the winners are and who has power and who has the ability to control that. So the whole series uh, made with charcoal and with um, 
images of fire are both a reference to indigenous techniques of slash and burn, um, which were used throughout the Americas to keep the land sustainable and to keep um, agricultural cycles healthy and viable. Um, and also a metaphor for um, place and landscape as also um, uh, inherently violent because the, the, the physical earth and the materials used in these pieces, whether they're gold referring to colonization or charcoal, which is basically burned trees, um, they very much point to a kind of social burning as well, a kind of um, these embers of a, of a social political aftermath and repercussion of all of that um, ongoing trajectory of uh, centuries of abuse on the landscape, but also uh, on uh, oppressed peoples. It's very powerful work to see um, in person, and we see some kind of examples of not the same works, but similar works in your studio. Um, and I, th I think another interesting element of your public art installations, um, you've talked about creating public art, not just because of that scale, of working in that scale, but also the opportunity to work in a public space and what it means to work in a public space. Mm -hmm. um, you were previously part of the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, which is kind of involved in this design and artistic vision of American designs uh, for memorials, coins, a national identity for art. But that, I, I know they don't currently have an artist on their commission anymore. Your, your tenure kind of ended in 2016, is that right? Uh, I was on the Commission of Fine Arts. I was appointed by Barack Obama. Um, and I was on it for a few years. Um, and uh, the Commission of Fine Arts is... Um, is a is an entity a commission of uh, six people um, that that change and rotate um, and they basically advise uh, Congress and the president on this matters of design so things that happen on the National Mall any monuments that kind of thing um, and so it was it was a, a great responsibility and an honor to have been appointed to that um, and certainly. Um, I am a, a, a big champion of, of what can happen in the public sphere, in the public realm, when it's, when it's done responsibly, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in, in creating public art and engaging with the public, because um, it begs, you know, always the question of what public? You know, and so there, there's always, um, you know, the public is this, the public in quotation marks, right, is this very mutable thing. Um, and I'm, this very much connects to um, these, these, these ideas that I'm interested in exploring about erasure. And so place and the landscape are more often about what you don't see than what you do see. So, for example, we are sitting here in my studio in Brooklyn on Lenape land, you know, stolen Lenape land, as well as, you know, the rest of the art world in New York City. Um, and these sort of like uh, peeling back the layers of where you are um, are really important. And so um, when I do something in, in the public realm, when I make a big public outdoor piece like Fato Morgana that I did in Madison Square Park in 2015, um, for me, it's, a, it's, a, it's an enormous opportunity to A, not disappear, 
right? To really take up space in this very visible way. Um, but also, you know, in the case of Fata Morgana, it was, it was made of these overhead mirrors that, um, that covered all of the walkways in the park. And it was really a way of doubling um, and creating a kind of portrait of the urban commute and of who really does make up that public. And so, for example, when we were doing the programming, everybody kept talking about the public. And, um, you know, I was very curious about this because the public is also the people that don't get named. And so um, that park, for example, sits in the Flatiron District, surrounded by all of these expensive uh, condos and Italy and all these different um, expensive restaurants. But at lunchtime, the people who use the park are all the people who work in the back of the kitchen um, in those places. And they somehow weren't counting as the public. And so I, I created a lot of the programming around it, which is an important part of what I do when I do public art. Um, for example, I had a series of uh, bilingual poetry readings. Um, I did a collaboration with Stephen Vetronio, which basically invited uh, uh, the public, you know, skilled or unskilled, <laughs> um, to participate in a kind of um, choreographed uh, musical dance kind of, uh, I don't even know what to call it. It was really like a kind of performance piece in the space. Um, I also did a collaboration with um, Yesenia Selier, who um, basically recreated in, in, in the piece underneath Fata Morgana, um, uh, Dia de Reyes, which in colonial times in Cuba was the only day that enslaved Africans could perform and sing and dance, uh, religious dances basically, um, publicly. And so again, it was this sort of rescripting of what constitutes public space. And that event, for example, which to the public kind of looked like a sort of festival with, you know, drumming and uh, uh, lyrics that were composed for it and dancing was actually a religious event. You know, it was actually a religious um, festival kind of rooted in Afro-syncretic uh, uh, um, Afro-Cuban religion. Um, and so that was sort of invisible to some publics. Um, but really visible to other publics. So that idea of who constitutes the public and what is seen and named and what isn't is something that's at the core of what I do. So whenever I create a public artwork, there are two things happening um, simultaneously. There's the physical artwork that gets built, which is the thing you see and point to and gets photographed. And then there's a kind of social structure that I'm creating underneath that usually gets implemented in the programming and in how the context around the physical structure is uh, owned with full agency so that the, the deliberateness of the concepts is um, kept intact. There's been a lot of discussion lately, not just about art in the public sphere, but more permanently, what gets memorialized and what gets monumentalized and through art in a very deliberate way. Um, and we've been seeing a lot of movement to memorialize long-overlooked people, long-overlooked groups, long-overlooked figures that have been very important to American history, but until now have not been included in the kind of monument-making. They haven't, they haven't been involved in that. Is that something that you're interested in? Do you think you, you, you would see your work being able to, to design a monument to a historical figure? Is that something you'd want to be involved in? Um, absolutely, yes. I think actually that, I mean, I've, 
I've certainly designed um, permanent structures that are monuments. They don't always have to be figurative in order to commemorate an event or a person even. Um, certainly when we see things like the Vietnam uh, Veterans Memorial, there, there's no, nothing figurative there, and yet it's one of the most powerful memorials that we have. So I absolutely see myself engaging in that kind of um, monument-making or memorial-making um, because I think it's really important. Um, at the moment, I'm... I'm making a permanent piece uh, for the rooftop of uh, BAM here in Brooklyn. And I also have a permanent piece that's about the length of a city block um, called Seattle Cloud Cover, which is permanently installed and part of the infrastructure at the Seattle Art Museum's Olympic Sculpture Park. Um, I also just uh, finished uh, a permanent piece in New Orleans um, in the Bestoff uh, Sculpture Garden. Um, and it's a piece that's 60 feet long and Definitely very uh, uh, permanent. Um, so I think what's interesting and important about monumentality and you know even memorials, regardless of what they're to, um, is that sense of permanence. And so for a long time, the visibility and the permanence, the thing that doesn't get erased, um, has has been defined. Um, by whoever sort of uh, can connect to the canon and to, um, you know, quite frankly, to white supremacy. You know, those are, those are the monuments that have the most visibility in this country. And so um, I think that there's, there's a really uh, important uh, responsibility to shift these narratives because those public monuments that take up space, that are cast in bronze, that are permanent, that aren't going anywhere for hundreds of years are what uh, and how people learn about history. And for those of us in the art world, we're sometimes a little bit in a bubble, but the way that public monuments are supposed to work is that people who may not know anything about art or art history can look at them and understand something. And so I think that um, this, this uh, push for monuments where um, people of color can see themselves um, is incredibly important because if you are a four-year-old child on a school trip and you look up and you only see um, people that don't look like you be commemorated, um, it's very hard to imagine um, that, that you can be in a position of power one day, but it's also a very effective way to erase the, the, the violence that um, colonization has created and that is our shared reality, regardless of, you know, what, what, uh, what you identify with um, personally. Great. Well, thank you so much, Teresita. It's been wonderful speaking with you. Great. Thank you. Teresita Fernandez Elemental is at the Perez Art Museum Miami until the 9th of February 2020 and at the Phoenix Art Museum in Arizona from the 21st of March until the 26th of July. And that's all for this week. You can read all the news from Miami in the daily papers if you're at the fair itself or on our website at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find in the App Store. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com where you can find the subscription to suit you. While you're there, you can also subscribe for free to our daily newsletter and our monthly newsletter called Art Market Eye. Do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and if you've enjoyed it, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. 
The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David is also the editor. Thanks to Louisa and to Teresita, and thank you for listening. Join us next week when we'll be talking about art and comedy. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now. <laughs>